So my agenda, my hope throughout this series has been to inspire you to engage in this ancient, beautiful, sometimes jarring and disturbing and insightful, God-breathed ancient collection of writings that you would make it a regular part of your own life, that here you would find God's own revelation of himself, that you would find guidance for your life, that you would orient your life around this text. And so over the last few weeks, I've really been seeking to engage you, to inspire you to get in the text. And today, as we close, I kind of want to switch gears, and I want to talk kind of from the other side of once you start engaging in the Bible, And I want to talk to you about the danger of misusing the Bible once you start to read the Bible. And so I want to share with you a message today entitled Twisted Scripture. Now, don't get confused. Some of you are thinking, did he say Twisted Sister? Wasn't that a band from the 80s? And yes, indeed, it was a band from the 80s. Actually, this was Pastor Robert's favorite band of all times. And there's a good reason for that. You know, if you were to study the history of rock and roll, you know, and kind of like chart it like this, and, 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 you know, it began maybe with Elvis or, you know, somebody like that, and it starts to grow and spread through the Beatles and, uh, you know, Four Tops and so on and so forth. And all of us would say that, that rock and roll music for sure reached its pinnacle in the 80s with heavy metal. And then the, the very Mount Everest of the entire heavy metal scene, of course, was Twist's sister. Can I get a witness? No, you cannot. That's terrible. But I want to share with you a message today entitled Twisted Scripture. I saw this this week. Uh, some of you guys have seen this guy, the most uh, interesting man in the world. I don't always read the Bible, but when I do, I only read the parts I like. And some of you can relate to that. And I want to talk to you, you know, sometimes we do only read the parts we like, but sometimes we take the Bible and we, we read it and then we twist it, the parts we like and the parts we don't like. And the text we're looking at today actually talks about that problem. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, and it says this. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And then he says this, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. It's interesting, in this passage, Peter is commenting on the writings of Paul, which is fascinating. It's the only place in the New Testament where you have a direct reference from one writer to another writer. And what's fascinating is what he says about the writings of Paul. Look at what he says next. He says, uh, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I don't know, is it just me that finds it really refreshing that Peter finds Paul sometimes difficult to understand? He said, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So two things I want you to notice about this passage. You know, number one, I want you to see that Peter recognizes that the Bible at times can be hard to understand. So he points out first that the Bible can sometimes be difficult to understand. And of course, again, this is really refreshing that Peter found Paul hard to understand. As he kind of alludes to, the other scriptures sometimes are also hard to understand. 
And that's significant because here's Peter. Peter got an education in the Bible from Jesus. Peter spent three years with Jesus. Peter knew the language that the Bible was written in. He knew the cultural context and background. He lived in it. Uh, he could ask Paul if he had a problem with something he was writing. He could, say, he could call him up. He couldn't call him up, but he could text him. He couldn't text him. He could um, meet him on the road, on dirt road, I guess, somewhere and say, Paul, what did you mean when you wrote that to the letter, uh, in your letter to the church in Ephesus? What did that mean? And in spite of having all of kind of this extra added stuff that you and I don't have, still, Peter found sometimes the stuff Paul wrote hard to understand. And of course, we, we pointed out last week that sometimes the problem isn't that the Bible is hard to understand. Sometimes the Bible is very clear, it's very direct, it's very straightforward, and our problem is we just don't like what it says. But you know, oftentimes the issue really is that the Bible is tricky, it's difficult to understand. You know, um, and, and again, he points this out, the Bible is hard to understand. Now, I think a lot of us would, um, we'd like it to be the case that, you know, as that old saying goes, the Bible said it, and I believe it, and that settles it. And what that often assumes is a Bible that is crystal clear, everything is very straightforward and very direct, but of course, we don't simply have direct access to everything the Bible says because the Bible also includes an interpreter. And so we really should uh, say, the Bible said it, and at times I superficially interpret it. Then I assert my superficial interpretation with great confidence, and nothing is settled. Because when we approach the Bible, we bring ourselves. And when you bring yourself, you bring all kinds of stuff with you. Now, some of the stuff you bring to your own reading of the Bible is good. And so, you know, if, if you come to the Bible with a, uh, the, the church taught you about the Trinity or about the incarnation or about the deity of Christ, and you're given a theological tradition that the church has historically believed, and you receive that tradition and you bring that with you to the Bible. And so when I first started reading the Bible, I was 16 years old, and I believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, not because I discovered it on my own, it was because the church told me to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, and over time, over the years, I've seen the wisdom in the church's teaching because it's there all over the place. And so it's good to come to the Bible with theological ideas. Uh, of course, we come to the Bible with previous things we've read about the Bible, stuff we've learned. One of the beauties of where I'm at right now in my own life after studying and preaching and teaching the Bible for some 25 years is that my knowledge has started to grow and to build. And so I read stuff, I remember reading stuff back when I was 22, 23 years old that I didn't understand at all. And I agonized over it and I worked on it and uh, I added to it and I kept going back to certain books and literature and, and, and trying to understand the text of scripture and, and reaching for other voices. And over time, my knowledge, my understanding has grown. So now when I approach the Bible, I come with a grid that has been informed and shaped and it's grown by uh, the stuff I've learned. But of course, that's not the only stuff I bring to my reading of the Bible, is it? What are some of the other things you bring? Well, you bring your family origin and your experience uh, as, a, as a person growing up. You bring the cultural uh, values that you grew up with as a 21st century American. You bring that with you to the Bible. Uh, you bring a lot of weird stuff that you heard or read on the internet sometimes to the Bible. 
Uh, we bring all kinds of stuff to the Bible, and sometimes what we bring to the Bible affects our interpretation of the Bible. Or you could put it like this, the place you stand in the room, it has an impact on what you see. Or we could put it like this, uh, you know, imagine an election taking place, and what does the Martian see? The Martian sees some people on planet Earth dropping notes in a tin can. And, uh, and, and what do you see? You see a tense, contested election. And what do historians see? Well, they see uh, a nation moving from one era to the next. And what you see depends upon the vantage point that you're looking from. And that's true with our reading of the Bible. The vantage point that you come to it with, the, the previous understandings, your assumptions, your presuppositions, all of that affects what you see in the Bible. And it's not just that. Uh, you know, we don't just come to the Bible as an individual interpreter. We come from a whole community of interpreters. And so if you've grown up in the 20th century and you grew up receiving kind of a basic Sunday school education and you went to VBS and then you uh, went to church and youth group and, and you got all kinds of stuff from a particular community of readers and how they understood the Bible and that affects, it impacts how you read the Bible. I grew up in the Calvary Chapel movement, and one of the things that was big there was something, a, a phrase that some of you might not kind of like know because it's one of these theological phrases, but I grew up learning something called uh, dispensational premillennialism, which is basically, you know, the Left Behind series. You know, that's dispensational premillennialism. And I was given this system growing up. It was what I was in. So I, I, I came to the Bible, and I read that system into the Bible, and over time, as I've studied the Bible more and more, I've begun to question it. And so we come to the Bible with all kinds of stuff that clouds our ability to understand and read the Bible. And so when you come to the Bible, you need to come with self-awareness. And you need to come with a humility that says, maybe there's something here I don't know. Maybe there's a way I've seen before that was incorrect way to see. Maybe I need to see something differently. And as you come with humility and submission to the text, the text can then come back and it can begin to shape and form and, and begin to transform how you think. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, don't be conformed to the image, you know, to this world around us, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as you approach the Bible with humility, with prayer, with good teachers, with good resources, with an openness, and you go to the Bible again and again and again, and this is just kind of a rhythm in your life, the Bible has this power to come back and begin to transform your mind. But it requires that you, that I, go to it with humility, with submission, with an openness, uh, with other resources, in order that we might learn and grow from the Bible. So number one, the Bible is hard to understand. And it's hard to understand because we come to this text and we read all kinds of stuff in the text that is not there. And so it involves uh, what um, one theologian that I love called uh, uh, N.T. Wright he referred to the proper way to read the Bible as a hermeneutic of love. The word hermeneutic simply uh, refers to the interpretive practice of going to the Bible, going to the Bible and seeking to interpret it and understand it. And he said, you go to the Bible uh, with a hermeneutic of love. 
Or we could put it like this. Uh, the Bible is incredibly difficult to understand at times, but I don't want that to discourage you from going to the Bible. I want it to, I want it to encourage you that uh, the Bible is going to take work in the same way that, you know, my wife at times is difficult for me to understand. And for some of you, your parents or your roommates or your friends or your kids, you're just like, they're difficult to understand, but they are so worth the work of seeking to understand them because that's what a relationship of love requires. It's what it demands of us. It demands that we go again and again with listening and understanding and seeking to go back and say, um, you know, there, there's me and I'm the knower and then there's the one who is yet to be known and we are not the same thing. And so as I go, I need to go with an openness and seek to be transformed and molded by what is there. So number one, the Bible is difficult at times to understand. And because of that, because the Bible is difficult to understand, uh, by the way, I'll just, I almost forgot to read a little quote from N.C. Right, here we go. To know is to be in relationship with the known, which means that the knower must be open to the possibility of the known being different than had been expected or even desired. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you begin a relationship with a friend or maybe with a boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that, and you have all of these preconceived ideas in your head about them, and it's different than who they actually are. And in a bad relationship, you hold on to those things and you demand that they be who you want them to be rather than having the patience and the love to let them be who they are and then to grow and change accordingly. And so too, uh, when we come to the scripture, we have to come with an attitude of it being different than what we had expected or even desired and must be prepared to respond accordingly as we said last week, we need to be prepared to respond to God's word as the authority in our life, and so we respond with obedience and with trust and with receptivity. But again, the Bible sometimes is hard to understand because the Bible at times is hard to understand. Therefore, the Bible is easy to twist. Come on, that does look like a guy twisting something, does it not? Again, look what, back what he says in the text. He says, there are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable, by the way, he's not engaged in name calling. When he speaks there of the ignorant, he's talking about people who don't know what they don't know. And when he talks about the unstable, he's talking about people who have been dislodged from the historic tradition of the church, the theological tradition in the Old and New Testaments that, has, uh, that ultimately came to be instantiated in the great creeds of the church. So he says they become unstable. They don't know what they don't know. And so they take texts and they rip them out of context and then they begin to tweak them and twist them to say what they want them to say. When I was in seminary, uh, I was taught there are three, the three most important rules of Bible interpretation are these. Context, context, context. You know, a text without a context becomes a pretext to say anything you want it to say. And so it often happens in the church that we rip stuff out of context and we use those words because they're God's words. We use God's words to endorse what we want to do. And I think sometimes we treat the Bible the way uh, Sprite treats LeBron James. Now, 
what does LeBron James, superstar athlete, have to do with Sprite? Answer class, absolutely nothing. You know, I was reading this week about LeBron James' diet, and he is strict and he's serious, like any superstar athlete does. And so he dramatically reduces sugar and far and away sugary carbonated drinks from his diet. And of course, what on earth does drinking more and more Sprite have to do with becoming a superstar basketball athlete? Well, of course, nothing. If you're going to become a, 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 you know, an elite athlete, you need to work hard. You need to control your diet. You need to discipline yourself. You shouldn't be drinking this stuff. And yet, LeBron James is used by Sprite. I mean, he's not used against his will. He's getting paid a lot of money. But he's used by Sprite to endorse Sprite because they, they, they think that we're so stupid that when we see LeBron James associated with Sprite, we'll go out and buy Sprite because we think somehow that if we can drink that Sprite, we'll become like him. What a specimen. And so how many people use the Bible. They rip it out of its context, and then they use it to endorse all kinds of things. And in so doing, they oftentimes tweak and twist the meaning of the text. And so maybe some examples would help. So let me just uh, uh, walk through some examples of taking a text out of a context. By the way, when we talk about context, I'm just going to pull back from LeBron so you're not distracted by him. He's distracting, right? Come on, Lakers, 2021, 2022 is your year. You guys are unbelievers. I thought this was a group of believers in here. Thank you, Steve. Nella Vitz is our believer. He's, he's all for the Lakers. All right, let's get it. So, so let's talk a little bit about context. When we talk about reading the Bible in its context, what we mean is looking at words in the context of sentences and sentences in the context of paragraphs and paragraphs in the context of larger sections and those larger sections in the context of the book in which they appear and then that book in the larger context of redemptive history that is contained in the whole scope of Genesis to Revelation. And so we need to learn how to read the words in their context, read the Bible in its context. But of course, there's other considerations. We need to think about the historical and the cultural context in which the words was written, which is very foreign, very different, very strange, very far removed from our own. We need to think about the social location in which these words were written, which again is oftentimes very removed, very different from our own. We need to think about the literary context. What kind of genre of literature are we reading here? And how does that genre of literature communicate? And so context, 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 if we're going to faithfully treat the Bible. There he is again. But let me just give some examples. Um, so this one is, is great. So uh, oftentimes we'll, we'll take a text, again, we rip it out of its context, and we twist it to mean something other than what it meant in its original context. Example number one, Philippians 4.13. By the way, these next five examples, I'm going to surely upset at least somebody in here by one of these examples maybe several of you. Um, but we will have a Q&A time after this. 
It'll be our last Q&A time of our Bible series, our last Q&A time for a while. So I'd invite you to come back for the Q&A time. I want you to come in here and we'll just have some more conversation of something here, break something. But um, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now the implication here is that this is a promise that God will help us win our games or he'll help us get the, the deal or he'll help us uh, bench a, a greater amount of weight. But it's interesting, when you set it in its context, you find that it's something very different. Just prior to this verse, Paul talks about himself knowing lack and suffering and pain and need. In fact, he's writing this not from a position of strength and success. Though Paul knew some success and strength in his ministry, he had seasons where he was planting churches, where people were coming to Christ, where there was all kinds of revival going on. He knew those seasons of, of, of plenty, but this was not one of them. In this season, he's writing from prison. And in prison, he is chained up, and it is dark, and it is, there's suffering. And it's in that context that he writes these words, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This might be a truer statement for those who lose the game or who don't get the deal or whose bankrupt goes, or who go bankrupt or something. I can get through this through Christ who gives me strength but you need to read the text in its context so you don't twist it and make it mean something other than what it means. Here's another one. Where there is no vision, the people perish. This comes from uh, Proverbs 29, 18. It's interesting. This translation is from the King James Version, and uh, it's not the best translation of the Hebrew text. And so the NIV reads like this. It says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. And then it's set in Hebrew parallelism, which the second phrase in Hebrew parallel explains or explicates or gives further meaning to the first statement. And so the second statement is, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. In other words, this is a text that is primarily about a prophetic word, the revelation of God that comes, and it's saying, look, a, a, a nation of people, a community of people who have no revelation from God will go astray. It's not saying that if you don't have a visionary leader at the head of a church or a visionary leader at the head of your organization, you're going to go astray. Now, that may be true, it's just not what this text is teaching. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a, a young man, a poor young man, who got up to preach on this text in front of my old preaching professor who's preached here, Dr. Don Snookian. And uh, Don came up to him afterwards uh, in front of the whole class after he preached this whole sermon about the need for vision. And without vision, the people are going to perish. And he was exhorting us to be leaders of vision, you know. And, and Don got up and he said, hey, um, I noticed you preached out of the King James did you do that because you studied the original Hebrew and you felt like that was the best translation? Crickets. And then he said, uh, did you read the second phrase in that verse? Crickets. He said, you didn't look at this text in its context and you've ripped it out and you've made it declare something that God is not saying. That's how I felt. We all just... Let's do a third example. Uh, this is one that's kind of popular right now. Um, Revelation 13 talks about the mark of the beast. And it says this, 
And it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And right now, there's a very speculative kind of conspiracy theory going around the internet right now that what this is referring to is the vaccination. And in the same way that if you get vaccinated, you, you know, um, once you get vaccinated, you cannot buy or sell. Now the government is putting all these restrictions on us where you can't go into a restaurant or go into a market unless you have proof of vaccine. And see, this is the very precursor, if not the very mark of the beast itself. But all you have to do is read this text in its literary context. This is apocalyptic literature. And it is almost certainly the case. When you look at it in the earlier text, it talks, in the earlier part of the passage, it talks about two beasts, one that dies and gets a mortal wound and comes back, and the one that dies and gets a mortal wound and comes back. He administers this mark of the beast, and it's this, you know, this apocalyptic genre. And then the historical context is surrounding, uh, not around, it's not written to a group of people who were uh, being forced by the government or being coerced by the government, depending on how you read the things that are happening right now in our country. Gently nudged by the government, I don't know. Um, these were people that were being killed for their faith. They were being burned alive, they were being thrown to the lions, and that's the kind of stuff they were facing. They were not facing persecution because they didn't get a vaccination. You know, we oftentimes can tend to take our own 21st century experience and, 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 and want to read that into the text and find something fascinating and speculative there. When you don't, you need to be patient. You need to go through the text, look at it in this broader context and say, is that what it's claiming? In fact, he says in here, this calls for wisdom and all Bible interpretation does. Uh, fourthly, let me give a fourth example. And, and uh, by the way, there's uh, anybody familiar with Chick Tracks back in the day? All right. Um, wow. There's, I've got two more, but um, we're, I'm looking at my time. How are you guys doing? What, what is that supposed to mean, Natalie? Oh my gosh. Okay, I'll keep going. So this is one that's oftentimes ripped out of its context by critics of the Bible. And they'll read a passage like this, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And of course, in the early part of our nation's history, this text was ripped out of context by slave owners and used to coerce their, uh, their slaves into obedience in the name of God. And it's used in our own day, it's ripped out of its context by critics of the Bible and say, see, look at how regressive and awful the Bible is. It supports things like slavery and look at how awful this is. And that's to ignore the historical and cultural context in which this came out of. First century Greco-Roman slavery was bad, but it wasn't at all like uh, the slavery we had in our own country. And so the analogy begins to break down when you begin to analyze it. But where it really breaks down is when you read Paul's writings in its larger context. Paul was a Jew. He was not a slave owner. He was a part of a marginalized community who had their backs up against the wall. 
Uh, Paul wrote that revolutionary word in the first century, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. And it was Paul that wrote those words to Philemon, treat your runaway slave no longer as a slave but as a brother. And it was Paul whose own governing understanding of God was that God was the God who challenged uh, the pharaohs of the world and liberates the slaves. And one of Paul's dominant motifs of his whole understanding of salvation was a motif that revolved around the story of the Exodus. There was a liberation ethic that stood at the very heart of all the stuff Paul said. And so you need to look at texts within their context, not rip them out and make them easy fodder for memes and for criticizing the Bible. You have to have patience and wisdom to look at texts in their context. Look at, we'll look at one more. Psalm 137.9. This is, somebody put this together as, uh, to be sarcastic. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Like, there's a calendar verse for you, you know? And again, we look at this and we think, oh, that's so awful. It's so terrible. Why would this sort of thing be in the Bible? But again, you need to read the text in its historical context. This is in Psalm 137. It is written by the waters of Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, where the Jews had been taken they had been beaten and abused and killed and ripped out of their land. Their children had been murdered. Their wives had been raped. Their families had been torn apart. Their city had been destroyed. Their temple had been destroyed. And now they're being mocked by the Babylonians in Babylonian exile. And they are full of rage and anger and bitterness. And where does that come to speech in God's holy text? It comes to speech in the very presence of God. As if God says to the people who are marginalized and abused and oppressed and taken advantage of and beaten up, he says, I know where you're at. You've got anger, and I don't want you to pretend and bring a pretended self to me. I want you to bring your real and honest self to me and bring it to speech in my presence. And if those of us in this room have never had a moment in our own life where we thought, man, I just want to see my next-door neighbor's children thrown against the rocks, you know, or things like that. If you haven't thought that way, it's not because you're more moral or you're more upright than the ancient children of Israel or because you're more tolerant and loving. It's because you live in a nation, the strongest nation on the face of the planet. Most of us live in relative affluence and wealth and safety. We, we, most of us don't know what it's like to be in the situation that the Jews were in when they were in Babylonian exile. And so texts need to be read in their own historical context before they get ripped out and start being ridiculed. That's an arrogant, arrogant posture. So again, he says, the ignorant and the unstable twist these scriptures. Now, it's interesting, as he concludes this little section here, and as we conclude our series, he gives us two final exhortations. And one is negative, and the other is positive. And we're going to end here. Notice he begins with the negative. He says, in light of this, in light of the fact that stuff gets pulled out of context, and the scriptures get twisted, and there are uh, lawless people that are out, you know, promoting errors and erroneous ways of reading the Bible. And all of us are prone at times for our own erroneous readings of the Bible. He says this, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that the Bible sometimes is hard to understand, therefore it's easy to twist. He says, knowing that, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. He says, watch yourself. Watch yourself. Be on guard against erroneous readings of the Bible. 
You know, I, I think that um, there, there is probably no more time in history where that exhortation is more important than it is now in our day and age. You know, we live in a, in a world right now where frequently we are presented through our news feeds and Facebook and Twitter and on YouTube, video rabbit holes. We're, we're presented with alternate versions of reality. And of course, the goal of each of the platforms we engage with is to maximize our attention. And what gets your attention? Is it typically middle of the road, very sane, very stable, very moderate stuff? No, what gets your attention is the radical. It's the extreme. It's the speculative. And YouTube knows this, and they've been watching you. They've been extracting all of your data. Every time you click on something, it's just recorded and it's pulled out. And then they carefully curate through their algorithms and whatnot content that will get your attention. And again, what gets your attention? It's typically not the stuff that's true. Uh, MIT researchers did a study on this, and they studied 126,000 stories that were distributed on Twitter. And what they found was that on social media, fiction travels faster than truth. And that false stories were six times more likely to go viral than true stories. And so fake news is faster than truth. Their conclusion, quote, it seems pretty clear that false information outperforms true information. Or as one professor said, the key takeaway is really that content that arouses strong emotion spreads further and faster and more deeply and more broadly. The more outrageous and toxic and speculative and conspiracy theorist, theorist uh, your ideas are, the more likely they are to generate attention. And it's not just true for content outside of the church, it's also true for Bible content and theological content that finds its way on the internet. And so you and I, we need to be on guard on the stuff we are consuming, and we need to be critical evaluators of what we are reading. Now, it's interesting, though, although he's warning us against that, he says, look, be on guard, be careful, be out the watch. And I say to you, be on guard against speculative Bible readings and conspiracy theories and bad, out-of-context Bible readings. It's interesting because the alternative to Bad interpretation for Peter in our text is actually not good interpretation. Look at what it says. He says, but grow in a sound hermeneutic. Go through all of the Bible study and make sure you know how to read the Bible in its context. Is that what he says? He actually doesn't say that. Now, of course, that's a good thing to do. I hope that you and I read with self-awareness. I hope that you and I can read the Bible in its literary, historical, uh, social, and all of that context. We need to read the Bible well, be good interpreters. But it's not the real thing that's going to guard us from being pulled into error. Instead, what's going to guard us is a robust and deep experience and understanding of the grace and knowledge that is in Jesus. He says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You know, I was almost hesitant to read some of these texts that were taken out of context because I, I almost fear that 
I, I, I can present myself on the one hand as being arrogant or know-it-all and can, you know, point out all the erroneous ways that everyone else is misinterpreting the Bible while I am the guy who reads it right and true and faithful because I am so awesome, you know? And of course, that's always a danger of going to seminaries. You get kind of education, and your education can sometimes lead into self-righteousness and arrogance. But I'll tell you what doesn't lead to self-righteousness and arrogance is a deep understanding of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. When Paul refers to here to growing in the grace of Christ, grace is like a hyperlink for Paul. You press on it, and it opens up the whole event of Jesus Christ and how in Christ God is for us utterly and completely and unreservedly for humanity and not against us. He invites us to himself to be redeemed and restored, not through all of our proper, correct Bible interpretation, because a lot of us have all kinds of pockets in our knowledge and understanding of self. He invites us to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is by grace. And so he says, I want you to grow in grace. I want you to become a conduit of God's grace to each other. The kind of grace that is gentle and kind and patient with erroneous views around you. The kind of grace that moves you toward unity and love with your brothers and sisters even when you don't agree with them. And I want you to grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ, knowledge of who Christ is in his identity, what Christ has done in his work, in his death and resurrection, and is soon coming again. Knowledge of who Jesus is, knowledge of the way of Christ, that ethical way of life that we have been invited into to practice this way of life. This, he says, is what you are to grow into. And if you're gonna grow into anything, if you're gonna grow some muscle, if you're gonna grow in your ability to uh, do math, if you're gonna grow as a, um, a car driver, some of you need that. Um, I was trying to be funny there and say that some of you are bad drivers and you need to help, um, but I actually don't know how any of you drive, so. Um, but listen, if you're gonna grow in any field, it's gonna demand something of you, right? And if you're gonna grow in the grace of Christ, an experiential understanding of God's love and all the ways in which that, that love was manifest and embodied and put on full display around us in God's own glad, glad self-giving in Jesus. If you're gonna grow in grace and how you treat other people, how you live with other people, how you talk to other people, if you're gonna grow in your own knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done, it's gonna demand something of you. And a part of what it's going to demand is, of course, what we've been talking about for the last six weeks. It's going to demand engagement with the Bible. And it's going to demand engagement with people around you. And it's going to demand a serious self-awareness of all the pockets in your own life where, you know, you don't want to deal with, but you need to deal with. It's going to demand spiritual disciplines that you employ in your life that are formative and shaping for you. It's going to demand something of you. But he says it what it demands is well worth it because you will be grounded and you will be stable in the truth of God that is preeminently on display in Jesus. The sum, the, the very heart of the Bible is Jesus. The point of the Bible is Jesus. 
And if any ways in which you're engaging with the Bible is pulling you away from an intimate relationship with him, an embodying of his unique alternate way of life in this world, of treating other people the way Jesus treats you, if any way in which you're reading the Bible is pulling you away from him, then you're reading the Bible like the Pharisees. Being pulled maybe into speculation or self-righteousness or whatever, but Jesus said this, and I'll close with these words. He says, you seek or he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life. But these are they which speak of me. And you do not come to me that you might find life. Jesus says, in essence, if you want to be a good Bible reader, the first place you need to go is you just need to come to me. Orient your life around me, your heart around me. And through this experience with me, through the lens of who I am and what I've done, you can start to properly understand the rest. Everything else kind of gets put in place when Jesus is at the center. Our great God and Father, we come to you now. And Father, we all recognize before your face that there are pockets of ignorance, pockets of instability, pockets of self-righteousness, and arrogance, stuff I think I know that I don't actually know. And God, we just confess that before you. And we ask God that you would have mercy on us and cleanse us and forgive us. God, give us true and undivided hearts that are centered in your son, Jesus. Let us love Christ above all else. Let us orient our lives around him and let us treat one another as he has treated us. And in so doing, we will be properly interpreting and embodying your word that you have given to us in Christ.